Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Clones, welcome to our Daily Jungle. It is Podcast Tuesday, so let's jump right into it. Big, big Tuesday. The Chiefs came up huge last night on Monday Night Football. Celtics broadcast legend Tommy Heinsohn had himself quite a night. And Nick Saban's red ass is in midseason form. That we had our usual great guests, Arizona Cardinals cornerback Justin Bethel, Notre Dame head coach Brian Kelly, and the Pirate Washington State head coach Mike Leach coming off that enormous win over USC. Alvin, I know you've got a lot to do today, so go ahead and do it now. Roll it. (laughs) Got to start with last night's game. Quick recap. Now, if you go based on reputations, Washington and Kansas City was pretty much a battle between the quarterback who can't win a big game and the quarterback who is only a game manager. Now, winning in October is not the same thing as winning in January. But if you're Washington and you're Kirk Cousins and you go into Arrowhead on Monday night and you beat the last undefeated team in the NFL, then that's a big, big win. And on the opening drive of that game, Cousins looked like he might do just that, hitting Terrell Pryor for a 44-yard TD pass. Then he chased that with a field goal on their second possession, 10-0 Washington. But Kansas City did what Kansas City does. They didn't panic. They figured out a way back into that game, and they took a 20-17 lead with just under five minutes to go. Then it was back to Cousins, and for a moment, it looked for all the world like he was going to shake that can't-win-a-big-game rep. This guy breaks off one scramble after another, looking like Steve Young and Cam Newton, together some hybrid. Then he's shredding the Chiefs defense with his legs. 10 yards on third and eight, 15 yards on second and eight, eight yards on first and 10, all the way down to the Kansas City 22. And then on third and two, from the 22, he goes for it all. Third and two at the Kansas City 22. Arms extended, right foot out of his left. Shotgun snap. He looks, backpedals a step, got the block, throws in the end zone, arching spiral, leaping, falling down. Oh, and he dropped it, Doxon dropped the ball as he hit the turf in the back of the end zone. He contorted his body, came down with the ball and fell hard, backpedaling, leaping, and down he went, and the ball coughed up, incomplete, fourth down. That's the perfect call from Westwood 1 because that's exactly what happened. That was a perfect pass. God, he threw such a great ball. Perfect pass, and Josh Doxson nearly had it. Probably should have had it. He elevated, he caught it, he brought it in, but he lost control as he hit the ground. He did everything except finish the catch. Now, don't get me wrong, that's not an easy catch. Not an easy play. Would have been a legendary moment, but it was right there for Washington, right there for Kirk Cousins. Instead, they settled for a field goal that tied the game. And you had to be thinking, especially if you're a Redskin fan, they're going to regret not finishing that. And then it was time for the quarterback, formerly known as the game manager, to manage his way to a win. His own tight end, Travis Kelsey, said after the game, Andy Reid has given Alex Smith the keys to the car. And that's worked out well. 293 yards and a touchdown in the air, 56 yards and a touchdown on the ground. But there was no better moment than this play to Albert Wilson. There's the shotgun snap, dropping back three, pocket troubles, he's flushed, runs on the hash mark, runs to the far side of the numbers, packs his arm, throws a wobbly pass, down the sideline it is caught, down the sideline it was caught by the wide receiver Albert Wilson who caught it on a bobble at the 40, he's down to the Redskin 35 down the far sideline on a pass that was a wounded duck, 36 yard pickup. 
wounded duck or a dime or whatever you want to call it, man. It got there. It got there on a rollout on the game-winning drive. Great pass on the run. Great catch, if you ask me. One more completion, and they're in field goal range for the rookie, Harrison Butker. In the words of Elk, the rookie laced it. 23-20, Kansas City, ball game. Thanks for coming. Ah, but not quite. Not quite, because Washington still had one play left in them, and what a play that was. First and 10, shotgun snap, goes to the quarterback, Cousins, who throws outside. The pass is caught by Jamison Crowder, who tried to throw it back to Cousins. The ball was thrown backwards, so it's a fumble, and it's picked up by the Chiefs, and Justin Houston, who picks it up with the 20, runs past the 10 down the middle into the end zone, and that is a touchdown for the Chiefs. Game is over, and they win it. 29 to 20. <laughs> <laughs> but there were a lot of people that were not laughing. Yeah, and there were a lot of people who were laughing. I don't need to tell some of you the significance of that play. Those who know, know. Either way, it's an incredible moment or it's an absolute gut punch. Either way, Kansas City is 4-0 and they're the only defeated team in the league. You see a play like that, it's so funny. And especially best to be in the sports book when something like that goes down. It's funny because we're all watching a different game. We're all watching the same game, but we're all watching a different game. Anyway, and you know Chiefs fans are going to be banging on about how they don't get enough respect, which is pretty much a hobby, a pastime for Chiefs fans. But this time, it's true. It's true. Not just because this is a very good team. They've had very good teams in the past. This feels like a different team. They're explosive. They're versatile. They've got a confidence. They've got a swagger about them that they're just going to figure out a way to win, even when they're not at their best. They've got a killer tight end. They've got a home run threat in Kareem Hunt, and they've got Alex Smith, a different Alex Smith, which I want to get to a little bit later on. Different, though, in the sense that he's got the keys to the car, and he's driving it pretty damn well. Now, it is early. But right now, it is Kansas City and everybody else. And I don't think anybody can debate that. The only debate right now, especially if you ask Chiefs fan, are they getting enough respect? Are they getting the respect that they deserve? I wouldn't get so caught up in that. You're a quarter into the season. You're 4-0. What more do you want? You're the best team in the NFL right now. Alex Smith is a different-looking quarterback right now. He's got different tools to use. What more do we need to say to give you more respect? Do you want me to award you the Lombardi Trophy right now? I can't do that. You are the best team in the NFL right now, Chiefs fan, and you've got a different look and a different swagger, and you're more explosive than you've been. I can tell you that. Is that enough? Arizona is at Philadelphia on Sunday. Justin Bethel is my guest. Coming off that 18-15 win over San Francisco in overtime on Sunday, you know, maybe that wasn't Arizona's best game, but you found a way to win. So how satisfying is it to beat a division opponent in OT the way you guys did? Um, It's very satisfying, you know. Um... Anytime you win a division game, it's it's very important. Uh, and, you know, to win it in that fashion, I think, uh, shows that we're, we're finding a way to win uh, when it comes, when it gets down, you know, to the to the very end and we need a big play. I think we're finding, finding ways to win. All right, in terms of that big play, you got one from Larry Fitzgerald. Obviously, he had that amazing 19-yard TD catch in overtime to win the game. What did you see on that play, and what was your reaction when you saw him come down with the ball? Oh, it was funny. So when when I was watching it, and and as soon as I saw who he who uh, Carson was throwing it to, and I saw him jump up for it, I said, "Oh man, he's about to catch that." I said, "That's <laughs> definitely a touchdown." I said, "That's a touchdown for sure." And uh, lo and behold, it was he caught it, came down with it, uh, and that was a game. You know, everybody went crazy on the sideline, and uh, you know, 
when you got a guy like Fitz on the team, you, you never know what he can do that, that's going to change the game. Justin Bethel joining us afterwards. Tyron Matthew tweeted, can Larry be the first player to get into the Hall of Fame as a current player? I think so, end quote. Hey, look, you've been around Fitz for a long, long time. So you know how special he is, but does he still do things to surprise and amaze you at times? Um, I, I would say that it doesn't surprise me anymore. It, it is amazing, but I don't, I'd say it doesn't surprise me. You know, we'll be at practice, and, you know, he'll make, he'll make one of those Larry catches, and it's just like, man, this guy just has – he never ceases to amaze you, and he's uh, like the ageless wonder. He just keeps getting better at time. Justin Bethel joining us. All right, so what about the defense? You didn't allow a TD. You did not allow a single first down in the fourth quarter. You held the 49ers to a field goal in overtime, which gave the offense a chance to win the game. So how pleased were you with the way the whole defense stepped up when it mattered most, and do you feel like you're back to playing Cardinals defense? Yeah, I think so. You know, um, over the last couple of weeks, um, even I know myself, for example, you know, it comes to we'll play a first, the first three quarters will be amazing. We're playing lights out, and then uh, that fourth quarter comes around, and you know, uh, when we played the Lions, I gave up two touchdowns in the in, in the fourth quarter, and then um, same thing when we played last week. I don't know, I can't remember, but <laughs> same same kind of pattern, and, uh, and that was something that. We knew we, you know, we had to work on, and I, and I think, uh, I think Sunday kind of showed that, hey, you know, we're we're getting back to where we need to be. Uh, we're we're becoming the defense that we need to be, uh, and we know that as long as we can keep producing at that level. Uh, our offense will be able to put points on the board and, you know, give us get us that victory. Yeah, Justin, you made that point about you gave up a couple of touchdowns, and I mean, you just own that outright. You have to have a short memory playing the position that you play, but how challenging is that? I mean, can you give up a big play, and is it immediately out of sight, out of mind, or is it kind of in the back of your mind, and you're thinking about, oh, great, I'm going to sit down in film session, we're going to have to break this thing down. Like, how do you <laughs> deal with giving up that play? Because everybody does give them up. It happens. Yeah, um, for me, you know, during, you know, during the game, I was – while I'm still in the game, when I do give a big play, for me, it's like, okay, let's go out there uh, and go out there and keep playing like you need to play, and uh, they're going to come back at you, so go out there and make a play and, you know, kind of make up for it. I, I just do my best not to let it um, ruin ruin the rest of the game that I have left to play and not focus too much on it to where I can't, you know, get the job done that I need to get done. Yeah, the thing is, as a lot of people know, you've had an amazing career already as a special teams player ever since you arrived in the league. And then last year, the plan was to make you a cornerback. Last season may not have gone as well as you had hoped from a team standpoint or personal standpoint because you were injured. So as you look back on that, I mean, do you just bury it? That's done. I moved on. Or do you look back on last season and do you use it as motivation and fuel? Um, I'd say a little bit of both. Um like I obviously, you know, didn't get to do what I wanted to do last year. So, it, especially, you know, being able to come back at the end of the year and play the way I did, uh, it's motivation that you know I can play, I can play at a high level, and uh, and I can be the guy that the team counts on. But also, it is last year. Um, none of that helps me this year. So, I got to focus on what I can now, and you know, take each day uh, as it is and as it comes, and just keep moving forward, and you know prepare myself every day and every week for the game that I have to play on Sunday. Now, a couple of weeks back, Carson Palmer was raving about you, saying you look like a totally different player going all the way back to OTAs because you were healthy and you were able to focus on being a cornerback. He also said that you break on the ball well and that, quote, you're probably as good of an athlete as Patrick Peterson. 
He said, I don't know who'd win a 40-yard dash or a 100-yard race. I do know he's got a – or I don't know who's got a better vertical, but you're splitting atoms between those two. So break this down for me. Who wins a race between you and Pat, and who's got the better vert? Um, I think a race kind of just depends on who has a better start. Um, I think it'd be one of those things. You know, Pat is really explosive, uh, and – He's, I mean, he's he's one of those athletes that's good at everything. Uh, anything he tries to play, he ends up being good at it. But um, I think I think coming to a race, I think it would just depend on who, you know, gets the better takeoff. And I'm not sure what Pat's vert is. I know my highest is the highest I've ever jumped was like 42, but I think Pat's around there too. So we might be really close in that. All right, so like Carson Palmer said, we're splitting atoms between those two. <laughs> What's it like being on the other side of Patrick Peterson? You know you're going to get some action. Now, as you point out, yeah. it's not that they're picking on me. It's just a chance to make some plays. So how do you approach those yeah. opportunities? And then how good does it feel when you make that big one? Um, It feels great. Um, You know, like you said, you know, when you're playing against uh, – playing opposite of Pat, you know, guys are going to come at you because they don't want to throw at him. Even, you know, even if they are – he is guarding their number one receiver. They're going to attend – to want to go away from him, especially if they, you know, they think they need a play and they think they can get it on me, so they'll just throw it my way. Uh, but like you said, I try and take it as um, a challenge to make as many plays as possible, you know, just meaning that I'm going to get a lot more plays and a lot more chances to make plays, and uh, and and it gives me a better chance to show showcase what I can do and showcase my abilities. You know, you look at that secondary, and there's so much talent there between you and Peterson and Matthew and Branch, and that's just naming the starters. So what's the vibe and the attitude like in that group? I mean, do you feel like that when that group plays its best, there's not a better secondary in the NFL? Is that a fair statement? Uh, yeah, I'd say that for sure. Um, we, you know, we do a lot of things where we can bring in. You know, we got Buddha, we got Bethe, we got uh, Brandon, we got Tremont. We got so many guys that can come in and uh fill in in certain certain um certain packages uh that we can cover whoever we need to cover and I think that when like you said when we're playing to the build the way that we know we can play and playing how we need to play I think I think we're the we're the best out there doing it and we just have so much talent and uh I think we just have to keep on working at it and you know going out there and actually proving that and showing that and if you were wondering how Nick Saban is dealing with another undefeated September. Let me tell you this, pretty terribly, pretty horribly, because Bama is throttling fools, and it's making the dictator absolutely furious. You ever notice the better they play, the more angry he seems? Because if you thought that Nicky was going to be happy after beating Ole Miss 66-3, to then you'd be absolutely wrong. If you thought that Saban would take the podium postgame with a little smile... After trashing the one program that has had success against him in the last few years under everybody's favorite one hooker dialer, you'd be wrong about that too. Hey, you tell me. Does this guy sound happy to you? Does the guy who has beaten two straight SEC opponents by a combined score of 125-3 to sound like a guy ready to answer this question? Uh, you guys have scored uh, 50 or more points against four of the last SEC, four of the last five SEC opponents you've played. Are you surprised by, I guess, the dominance that you guys have shown over these teams? You know what? I don't really care about how many points we scored in the last four games. I'm only worried about how many we score in the next game. 
All right, so I, I don't have any feeling about how many points we scored in the last four games or five games or how many SEC games we played. I'm really worried about how many we score in the next game and how we stop the next team that we play. All right, so that, that's, that's the focus on what we need to dominate next. Yo, Nick. Yo, bro, chill. Dude, dial that down, chill out, crack open that Coca-Cola on the podium, unwrap a little Debbie. I know it's not realistic for you to have a 24-hour rule to celebrate a win, but how about a 24-minute rule or a 24-second rule? 125-23. Man, this guy sounds uptight. Obviously, they've got a really, really tough game coming up. Obviously, he didn't want anybody getting too caught up in the last two games because there was one that he had circled on his calendar. Who do they have next? Who do they have next? Clemson, Georgia, the 85 Bears, the 2017 Chiefs? Well, the answer is Texas A&M, a 26-point dog in their own house. Now, a team has recovered nicely to win four straight after choking away the opener against UCLA, but has hardly looked dominant in squeaking out wins against Nickel State, Arkansas, and South Carolina. But say this about Sabes. You can tell how much he likes his football team by how red-assed he gets at his pressers. And if the last two weeks were any indicator, he really likes this team, just as he really hates reporters asking him about his team. So as we get ready to watch Alabama take on that next test and head to College Station, where A&M is a 26-point dog, I can't stress that enough. They're like a four-touchdown dog in their own house. Four-touchdown dog in their own house. And as he gets ready to take them on and go up against defensive coordinator John Chavis and an offense that on occasion will break out the pimp stick. We know it's a test for Bama, so get ready for Saves to burn a hole right through the next journo who dares to ask him about another Alabama blowout win on Saturday night. Because from the looks of things and the fact that they are 26-point favorites on the road, it looks like another blowout and beatdown. That's how good they are. A&M is at home, and they're 4-1, and one, and they're virtual four-touchdown underdogs. I'd love to see that. I don't track that sort of thing. I wonder if in the history of the sport, a 4-1 and one team at home has been a four-touchdown underdog. I'm going to say no without knowing. I'm going to say no without knowing. And this guy is hot, man. This guy's red. Red-assed. You know what? I don't really care about how many points we scored in the last four games. Yeah, I know, Nick. And that literally, can I tell you, that wasn't like something that had been building all week. That was building for the two minutes between him getting off the field and getting to the podium. So again, there's no 24-hour rule. There's no 24-minute rule. I don't think my, I think my man's got a 24-second shot clock. All right, hey, hey, gather around, gather around. Good job. Start the clock. That clock over there, boys, 24 seconds. Enjoy the win. 23, 22, 21, 10, 5, 3, 1, and Hope you enjoyed that. Get your asses on the bus. Hey, hard to argue with the results, right? Greatest college coach ever. Brian Kelly is our guest. 
So you're coming off that 52-17 to win over Miami U and South Bend. Let me start right there. You just beaten Boston College and Michigan State on the road. It would have been natural, maybe, Brian, for the team to have a bit of a letdown. So you challenge the players not to let that happen. They jump on Miami with 28 in the first quarter. How pleased were you with the way they responded to your challenge that you had put in front of them? Really pleased. Um, 18 to 21-year-olds, sometimes, um, you know, they look at the opponent instead of, you know, a standard of play, right? And we've built a mindset with this group since January that it's the standard of play that matters the most, not the opponent that you play. And I was really proud of our group. You know, I'm going to go back to that mindset in a minute. You have Miami head coach Chuck Martin, and he's somebody I've had on the show a couple of times. I know the two of you worked together for a long time. So what's it like for you from an emotional standpoint to go up against a former assistant and then handle business the way you did? Well, I think you go in knowing that you better be prepared. You know, Chuck had played five or four power five teams, and uh, he does such a great job of game management, holding on to the football, shortening the game, and giving his team that generally doesn't have the same talent level a chance to win. Go back to last year against Mississippi State, he loses the game late 17-16 in a bowl game. And so you better be prepared to go up against a Chuck Martin coach team. And, And so... I knew, knowing him as well as I do, that we better be prepared. Notre Dame head coach Brian Kelly joins us today. Josh Adams had TD runs of 72 and 59 yards against Miami. He's had runs of at least 60 yards in four of the five games this season. I mean, he's been productive ever since he got on campus, but he seems to have taken his game to a new level this year. What's been the biggest difference in his game this season? I think the uh, the ability to um, you know run with physicality and, and then – um, you know, he's breaking through into the second level and, and um, you know, turning those 15 to 25-yard runs into 50 to 60-yard runs. So um, speed and strength um, is something that has been developed uh, in his off-season training. And, you know, Barkley's a great back from Penn State, loves doing obviously great things at Stanford, but this young man is having an incredible career and he's He's, uh, you know, again, uh, physically uh, very imposing when he when he gets up into the uh, offensive line. Now, physicality is the key word here, but it's not just him. As a team, you're averaging more than 300 yards per game on the ground. You've got a really physical offensive line that gets after people, a stable of running backs, a quarterback in Brandon Wimbush who can clearly run the ball as well. So how important is that physicality that you're talking about when it comes to establishing the identity of your team? And that's who we need to be. I mean, we're in the Midwest. We're going to get great linemen each and every year. We have to have that kind of edge and a, a physical presence is who we need to be. And, um, you know, that was the mindset that we've developed with this football team in January. Um, you know, we lost seven games last year in the fourth quarter because we didn't have that kind of mindset. I didn't develop it uh, well enough with this football team. And uh, I made sure that that was the kind of mindset we were going to develop this year. And we'll continue to play that way um, because that's the standard that we've set. Yes, yeah. I was going to get back to that mindset. I'm glad you brought that up again. We're talking to Brian Kelly. I mean, you went four and eight, but as you point out, Brian, seven of those losses were one-score games. Now, when you've had the kind of success that you've had, it seems to me it would be pretty easy to say, hey, what we've always done has worked, so I'm going to keep on doing what I'm doing, but that's not what you did. Instead, it seems like you did some pretty deep analysis of every aspect of the program. If that's the case, what inspired that, and what was the process like? Well, I think extreme leadership requires you to look at yourself first and, and you know, Look, this isn't about perfection, uh, but 
you know, it's about excellence and I wasn't able to live up to that. And, and so admitting that, that there were mistakes made and we didn't get to the level that Notre Dame needs to be at every single year. So you look at yourself and what needs to be done. We made some substantial changes within the program, how we did things on a day-to-day basis. Um, and I think it's been, uh, something that for me, um, it starts with the head coach and, it, it works its way down to everybody else. And then you made some substantial changes on the staff. In some situations, that meant parting with guys who've been with you for an incredibly long time and were part of building the program. How challenging and difficult are those decisions and those conversations? Well, they're very difficult because they're, they fall on your shoulders. Um, those changes had to be made because of the things that I didn't do well. And so um, it, they're very difficult. But... Um, my why in terms of doing it is, is to, um, you know, excellence at Notre Dame, graduate all of our players and play for a championship. And, and, um, we weren't playing for championships here. And so I had to make tough decisions to get us back to the standard that Notre Dame has. And that's to play for championships. We're talking to Brian Kelly. All right. So you've got some new members of the staff. Of course, you bring in defensive coordinator, Mike Elko from Wake Forest. Offensive coordinator Chip Long from Memphis. What's it been like working with them, and what do you make of the results so far? Well, it's what what I wanted. I wanted a physicality on offense um, with a kind of a run first mentality, and, and uh, you know Chip has brought that, um, and we've gotten that out of our football team. Defensively, I wanted somebody that uh, was going to teach the fundamentals and and take the football away. And so far, those two have complemented each other extremely well in terms of we've taken the football away and we've cashed in and been extremely opportunistic. I think we're uh, virtually 100% in our red zone and and, uh, we're taking it away now uh, at a clip that uh, is as high as it's ever been since I've been here at Notre Dame. So before I let you go, let me ask you about your starting quarterback. Starting quarterback in Notre Dame is one of the most scrutinized positions in college football, if not all a sport, and Wimbush is in his first season – what do you make of how he's played and responded to that pressure that comes along with that job? Well, I agree with you. I mean, it's scrutinized, and the pressure is probably uh, as great as anyone. I-, I think he's exhibited the traits at the position as well as anybody. He's got grit. He's got competitiveness. Is he perfect? No. I mean, he's got a lot to learn. Uh, but when you line up at that position and if you've got those traits of competitiveness and grit and he'll keep fighting for you, I'm happy to have him in my foxhole any day. All right, so he's in a walking boot or was in a walking boot. I know you'll be really cautious with him. Do you expect him to be ready for Saturday, or is that still a question mark right now? I really don't know. I'm going to see, you know, we don't practice until a little bit later today. Uh, We'll get a chance to see him today and see how it looks. I think we'll have a better idea by tomorrow whether he's going to be able to go or not. And then finally, Brian, back to uh, last week, the win over Michigan State. More than the win, the celebration was great. You were cutting a rug in the center of a dance circle. The players were jumping around, having a great time. I mean, from the outside, it seems like you were having a lot of fun coaching this group. How much fun are you having? And let me ask you this. Is it different from the past, or is this just a matter of the outsiders finally getting a chance to see a little more of what goes on on the inside? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, but I, I will tell you that my role is, is more um, being with our players this year than it has been in the past. Um, not calling plays gives me the chance to build stronger relationships with all of our players, not just maybe some of the guys on offense. So it, it, it's uh, it's. Very enjoyable, but I, I don't know that you always get an inside look uh, when you're at Notre Dame. You're always per- 
perceived to be, you know, in your office uh, and, and a CEO type. Uh, look, you got to have some fun with kids. Uh, you're coaching kids, and if you can't have fun with them, you're in the wrong business. Most of all, though, it was the first chance to see the new-look Celtics in action, get some answers to some questions, because there's been some serious roster turnover in Boston, as we all know. Isaiah Thomas, Avery Bradley, Jay Crowder, Kelly Olenek. These are just some of the guys who are no longer there. Instead, it's actually easier to run down the list of guys from last year's Eastern Conference finalists who are still there. Al Horford, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, Terry Rozier. That's it. Four guys. Just four guys. And in comes Kyrie Irving, Gordon Hayward, Jason Tatum, Marcus Morris, and others. All of which raises some pretty obvious questions. How is Kyrie going to fit into the system? How will Hayward mesh with Kyrie? And then there's Aaron Baines. You know Aaron Baines, the Aussie big man who averaged five points and four rebounds with Detroit last season. He signed with the Celtics this past summer. He's a big man with simple dreams. Dreams like a bed with a fishing pole attached. Marcus said you either, you either want to or would live on a boat. <laughs> I saw something about that, but I mean, we're driving. He asked me when we were driving back to the hotel, and you know, I'm looking at 50, 60, 80 foot yachts out in the um, bay there, and I'm like, of course I could live on one of those. I mean, some of them have four bedroom suites on there. I mean, anyone would be happy to live on that. Plus, I love being out fishing, so anytime I could have a bed that has a fishing pole attached, I wouldn't be opposed to that. Like I said, simple dreams, a bed with a fishing pole. And anytime you bring in a big man, people naturally are going to ask, what kind of shape is he in? Well, actually, nobody is asking that question. But here is Celtics announcer and legend Tommy Heinsohn attempting to answer the question. I took a look at Baines in the shower. He looks like all of Australia. (laughs) He is really put together. Hey, uh, Tom, Thomas, uh, Mr. Heinsohn, what the hell are you talking about? No, I mean, seriously, what are you talking about? First off, and you would know this better than anybody, the rule of the locker room is what you see here and what you say here, let it stay here when you leave. I'm pretty sure that that same rule applies to the locker room shower as well, as in, I'm not sure that there's any reason for any color analyst to be starting any sentence ever with. I took a look at insert player's name in the shower. It just doesn't enter into it. There's never a context where you could add insight or wisdom to your call of the game that starts like that. I mean, I've never been this close to running an announcer's call. I nearly had to have LT jump in there. I mean, it was that bad and that weird. And then for him to continue and say that Baines, quote, looks like all of Australia. I'm not even sure what that means. And clearly, neither does his broadcast partner because the nervous laughter and silence that follows is about as awkward as it gets. I haven't heard a Celtics announcer so out of his depth since the also legendary Johnny Most tried to call an exhibition between the Celtics and a Yugoslavian team. Now quickly out in the middle, it goes uh, to the little guard, uh, Aberdovich. Out quickly to the big guy, and now to 
the lefty. And he lost the ball, but it's picked up in there. Now the little fella. Oh, boy, I'm, I'm having trouble with the name. Abardovich. My man, Johnny Most, he was the greatest. I mean, I'm a big Chick Hearn guy because I'm a Los Angeles native, but that is incredible. Quote, I'm having trouble with the name. Yeah, thanks, John. I think we figured that out when you referred to, quote, the little guard passing it to the big guy, then the lefty, and then back to the little fella. Now quickly out in the middle it goes uh, to the little guard, uh, Aberdovich. Now quickly to the big guy, and now to the lefty. And he lost the ball, but it's picked up in there. Now to the little fella. Oh, boy, I'm, I'm having trouble with the name. Aberdovich. That's iconic. Yeah, the kind of Johnny Most is you Celtic fans with Chick Hearn was to us Laker fans. That's incredible. That's yeah, a tough assignment right there. But even he was not referring to seeing Lefty or the little guard in the shower and how they were or were not built like all of Yugoslavia. Because I know that Tommy Heinsohn is a legend in Boston, rightfully so, and in large part because he says some kooky things behind the mic. Just like I know that it's the first game of the preseason and everybody's got to knock off a little bit of rust and get their muscles stretched out and warmed up. But that's about as confusing and baffling as it gets. And no, I am not interested in your sophomoric tweets and emails about his call or what a certain legendary coach might think of it. Don't even start. You're better than that. And even if you aren't, I know I am. The next time an announcer or a caller to this show starts in on seeing somebody in the shower or in the locker room and it makes the game or this show better will be the first time. I took a look at Baines in the shower. He looks like all of Australia. (laughs) He is really put together. (laughs) We are joined by Washington State coach, Mike Leach, and you want to talk about a great college football environment. Let me have you take us back. You're up 30-27 late on an Eric Powell field goal. Less than two minutes to go. USC gets the ball back. On second down, you get a strip sack. You recover the fumble. You take a couple of kneel downs. The game is over. I've got to ask, you've been a part of some big, big games. What were your emotions like in the final two minutes of that one? You know, you're kind of locked in on the next play. You know, I'd I'd, I'd love to give you a more exciting answer, but... um, you're kind of locked in on each play and what's happening. Um, and then once we scored uh, that final time, I was disappointed we didn't score a touchdown. And um, and I didn't think I'd made a great call on the the you know the third down right before we kicked a field goal because I, I felt like you know we could have kept the ball, run a little more time off, and and, uh, and uh, you know, scored a touchdown, and then of course they're explosive, and then they got the ball, and our defense had been playing good, and we stopped them, and um, and uh, well, the whole uh, the whole stands exploded, and all of a sudden I had about uh, forty thousand new best friends out there, you know. <laughs> all right, so they're going crazy, and when it's over, they storm the field. You would describe the scene on the field as quote like Woodstock, except everybody has their clothes on. But as a head coach, what's it like to be the center of a scene like that and see literally so much joy from so many people? You know, that's one thing about these stadiums that's always amazing to me is uh, 
is there is kind of almost a tangible energy that exists where you get a a whole bunch of people all hoping for something either way. Sometimes they're open for you, sometimes against you. Um, but there is kind of a tangible energy there. So, I mean, it was, um, it was just a blast to be a part of, I mean, there's uh, all, all the colors and then it, uh, it started, uh, kind of, we get kind of a fog, not really a fog, but just sort of a clouds that sort of comes around the stadium, you know, kind of, and just a great night for football and, and, um, but no, it was a really exciting game and we had a, I thought we had a great week of preparation. And as we prepared, there's a lot of energy on that, uh, around that. And cause you know, you're playing the, the Trojans who are a great team and, and, uh, all that stuff. And then there was a big buildup on it. And then of course, uh, uh, you know, we won, there was kind of a mission accomplished quality to it, but the, then of course, the stands exploded, and that, a lot of excitement, you know. But I, uh, and part of it is, is our locker room is such now where everybody's pulling from one another, and I think it sort of uh, capitalized that. Washington State head coach Mike Leach joining us. You know, I wonder where that leaves you because in the lead up to the game, I thought you made a really interesting comment, and I quote: "You told ESPN this when the Egyptians were building the pyramids, or the Romans were building roads, or you had the westward push with the railroads." I don't think that the guys on the ground were spending a lot of time thinking, hey, hundreds or thousands of years from now, they will look back at the brick that I've just laid down here and say that I changed the world, end quote. I mean, really interesting. But when you have a win like that over number five USC, is it just another brick that you laid down, or do you give yourself a chance to enjoy that one a little bit more? Well, I mean, it's it, it, it all came about just kind of one play at a time, and, and it would be fun to enjoy it, and it'd be fun to – uh, celebrate it for a day. The, tr- the tough thing is, is we're playing Oregon uh, this week, so there, you, you don't get much time for it. So we're pretty well past the USC win, or, or should be. I mean, if we're if we're half as mentally tough or disciplined as we think we are, um, you know, we've got to be fully invested and focused on Oregon because we play them, and they're an extremely highly uh, high quality team. They're extremely fast, like they always are. And uh, they're a real explosive team, and um, and it's at Autzen, so uh, we're excited about that one. I mean, uh, so, yeah, I guess the thrill-a-minute quality that goes on around here makes it tough to really relish the USC game as long as we might like to. All right, so when you talk about having the mental discipline and the toughness to get ready for the next thing quickly – you know, there's a lot of noise, right? A lot of noise now. After a win like that, when you're playing as well as you are on both sides of the ball, there's going to be that playoff hype and that national title hype surrounding the team. How are you approaching that? Is it something you embrace, or are you just trying to block that out altogether and choke it off? Uh, we kind of we kind of talk about the way we talk about it um, is, uh, you know, the New England Patriots have this uh, big sign I've seen you know, uh, photographs of, uh, or, you know, on documentaries and whatnot in their facility, the big sign coming and going from their facility is, is, uh, don't listen to the noise. And they, they put it like that. Don't listen to the noise. And, um, you know, and, and obviously they're going to hear stuff on the outside and, and, um, you know, I get, I get a ton of advice from my relatives and friends on all the you know, things that we need to do or could do differently in the rest. And, um, 
and we always term it as football time. Football time's football time. So if it's a meeting or a practice, um, we're just locked in there for that period of time and kind of practice it in a fashion as if, uh, you know, if you're on the sideline, you're about to go out there, you're mentally locked in. And so, um, you know, if it's a meeting or practice, uh, uh, no noise, it's just football time, you know. Now, Mike, you're doing a great job there at Washington State, but Andy Staples from Sports Illustrated had a piece recently, and it said your original coaching dream job back in the day would be to be the head coach at Key West High School. Everybody knows how much you love Key West. How different would your life be if you had gotten that gig? Well, it would have been an exciting life. It would have been different. And and, um, so when I was at Valdosta State, a year before um, uh, I became an assistant at the University of Kentucky, offensive coordinator at Kentucky, uh, I, I interviewed for the head high school job at uh, at Key West High School. And my thought on it was, um, is I, I would still I would still get to coach football and still the whole excitement and involvement in football and in young people and improvement, but. Uh, you know, I heck by by this time, if if I'd gone to Key West High School by this time, I'd have a boat. Um, by through all the other people down there in Key West and their expertise, I would have uh, drawn a lot of knowledge from that, learned and studied some of those skills the best I could. I'd be a lot better lobster diver. I'd be a lot better fisherman instead of uh, just uh, <clears throat> going out with somebody else and them taking me to the best fishing spot. I would know some of them and I'd know how to get there. Uh, I probably at some point in time would have been out in the water, uh, in the lightning and, uh, scared to death and have, uh, would have a story to tell about that. I would have seen more sharks, uh, in while I was in the water than I have already. Uh, I would have caught some huge fish. Um, and I probably would have been to more different islands in the Caribbean and uh, but I would still have the whole uh, day job, the quest to improve football wise. Oh, and also my kids. You can imagine my kids, the life that they'd have. It'd be very unique. It'd be different, and it would be interesting. But uh, you know, they'd have that whole uh, kind of Caribbean experience too. You know, Mike. In other words, you'd have the best life ever. What you laid out for me is the life that we all want. That sounds like the best life ever. Hey, you know what's wild down there is people go down there. Because it's an interesting economy. They'll go down there and say teachers and accountants and things like that. And then they'll become uh, cab drivers and bartenders because they could make a lot more money at it than actually practicing as an accountant or being a teacher, you know, that type of thing. Or uh, or they'll become a waiter or something like that. And and you got kind of this, uh, uh, well, the other thing is there's people from everywhere, all kinds of Eastern Bloc countries, you know, uh, and that type of thing. You know, Palestinians from, you know, actually, Palestinians and Jews actually from over there. And the whole place just kind of mixes and conglomerates, and you get to know a lot about the whole world just in this uh, little town of about 32,000 people. Christian in Maine. Christian, what's going on? Hey, what's up, Rome? Thanks for the vine, Bob. You got it. What's up? Hey, psyched, psyched for tonight's game. Uh, my only problem is I'm so sick of all this Yankees talk and this Aaron Judge talk, Rome. 
seriously, Aaron Judge, the only thing with more gaps and holes in this guy's swing is the dude's grill. He could eat corn on the cob through a barbed wire fence, man. That's not a good call. No. You don't like that call. I don't like that call. Not a very good call. Christian, it's Tuesday. It's this Tuesday, not last Friday. It's this Tuesday, not last Friday. See, that was the risk I ran in opening it up to you last Friday because now you can't shut it down. Now you can't turn it off. You got a taste. You know, it's kind of like I was the local pusher and I gave you a taste and you tried something you should not have tried. Thank you so much for listening. Now, if you have not done it yet, if I can get you to go over and listen to the Jim Rohn Podcast, Episode 6, that'd be great. Damien Lillard, Brian Koppelman, two amazing interviews, and your horrific voicemails. Check back tomorrow. We will see you then. I'm out. Change is strong, and you can experience it at Gold's Gym. For a limited time only, join the most supportive and dedicated community in fitness for just $1. Get access to the latest cardio and strength equipment, the best group exercise classes, and expert personal trainers dedicated to your success. A stronger you is waiting at Gold's Gym today. Tap the banner now for a free pass. Offer ends February 29th. Valid with select new memberships at participating locations only. Commitment required. Annual fee and other restrictions may apply.